G'day, mate. Forty here. Great news. If you like your $100 million deposit in Silicon Valley Bank, you can keep your $100 million deposit in Silicon Valley Bank. If you like your $5 million deposit in Silicon Valley Bank, you can keep your $5 million deposit. So all deposits into Silicon Valley Bank, right? They're all getting bailed out. You all have access to your funds today, right? So... That's how you move from surviving to thriving, all right? You get a big bailout. Now, I'm just curious, do you think the Biden administration would have bailed out, say, a bank in a red state? Do you think they would have acted the same way if this bank was in Florida? So right now, they're bailing out their supporters, all right? Silicon Valley is largely behind the Democratic Party. California is largely behind the Democratic Party. So right now, the Biden administration... (laughs) It's bailing out its supporters. And great news, yes, you get a bailout, and you get a bailout, and you get a bailout. Everybody wins, right? If you like your bailout, you can keep your bailout. If you like your deposits, you can keep your deposits. But what the heck? Whatever happened to moral hazard? Well, there's still moral hazard here, all right? You get socially humiliated. You get personally humiliated. Your career prospects will take a tremendous dive. And the, the people who were, were investing in the, in the bank as, a, as an investment, not just as a depositor, they'll get uh, damaged or wiped out. No, you can't keep your low prices. Can I have a bailout for it? Yes, you can have a bailout. All right. I, I am selling indulgences on this show so that if you have sinned in this world, all right, for, for a very, very reasonable price, I'm going to bail you out so that you can go to a place of true reward in the hereafter. Instead of going to hell or hanging around in purgatory, you can be with me in the world to come. So this is just a, a special one-time offer. It's, it's here for you, one-time offer, today only, indulgences. So thing that I find interesting about the Silicon Valley bank story is that everybody is interpreting it through their own political lens, all right? So people on the right say, oh, this is an indictment of, you know, woke business. But plenty of woke businesses are doing just fine, right? There's no inherent uh, correlation between going woke and going broke, even though they, you know, they, they rhyme. And uh, people on the left say, look, this is indictment of libertarianism. This is indictment of uh, capitalism. This is a, an indictment of the free market. This shows that we need more government regulation. So it seems like whenever you get a news event, like Silicon Valley Bank goes bust and then gets all the depositors get bailed out, everybody just reads it through their pre-existing prism. I don't know, has anyone changed their mind about anything important due to uh, news events? I wonder what... Uh, Tucker Carlson has to say. War ongoing in Ukraine, whatever your view of it, is completely reshuffling the world order and America's place in it. And it dawned on us last week that it's not clear where some of the people running for the Republican nomination stand on that war. So we sent a questionnaire to everyone running, and amazingly, almost all of them responded candidly and at length. And the picture that emerges of where the Republican candidates running for president stand in Ukraine is a little bit shocking. It's not at all what we expected, and it's not at all what Republicans on Capitol Hill are saying. 
more evidence that there's a disconnect between Republicans in Washington and everyone else. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first tonight, it has been 15 years since the global financial crisis of 2008, a long time, but it hasn't gone away. Its consequences, in fact, still define our world. Why is the U.S. government so deeply in debt? How did Wall Street get so much money? What did they do exactly? Why are housing prices so high? Why do our leaders stoke racial conflict? Why have so many Americans concluded that their system is rigged? In every case, the answers to those questions is the same. It all began in 2008. Now, 2008 and its aftermath is a complex story, but let's just sum up in the broadest possible terms what happened. Big financial institutions took foolish risks and nearly blew up the entire U.S. economy. We knew right away what had happened and who did it, but nobody was ever punished. The reckless bankers responsible got off. So did the politicians who encouraged the reckless bankers to be reckless. Nobody went to jail. Nobody was even banished from the industry. In fact, some of the wrongdoers even got their bonuses that year. So we had economic collapse, but it didn't hurt them at all. Why? Well, simple. The government bailed out the banks. That was controversial, but bipartisan. And at the time, they told us in bipartisan fashion that they were saving capitalism. But they weren't. In fact, they were inverting capitalism. What happened next is very simple. Wall Street was allowed to privatize its gains, but socialize its risks. That meant if things went well, the finance people got rich, in fact, richer than any group in human history. But if things went south, the government, you, would swoop in to save them. Pretty good deal. But for more than a decade, very few complained about this arrangement because things went very, very well. Wall Street boomed. And the root of Wall Street's success, no matter what they tell you, was low interest rates. Not new innovation, low interest rates. Low interest rates make a bull market inevitable. So in a normal, non-distorted capitalist economy, Companies become valuable, more valuable, when they produce more goods and services that people want to buy. But in an economy controlled by monetary policy run by the Federal Reserve, companies become valuable when interest rates decline. Let's talk about uh, Doug Mackey. He's going on trial. Looking at a Twitter thread, here's the story of Doug Mackey. The Twitter poster helped Donald Trump win the election in 2016. He's now being persecuted by the Biden Department of Justice for posting memes. He goes on trial today, faces 10 years in prison. This is the situation, and this is what it means for you. So this is Ricky Vaughn, a.k.a. Doug Mackey, rose to fame as a brilliant Twitter personality. At his peak, he was more influential than NBC, CNN, and The Colbert Report. I used to interact with him privately on Twitter. He reached and energized millions with this whole, you know, Ricky Vaughan, make make America uh, great again. So, come on, where's the thread? Okay, what the hell? He had a talent for making Hillary Clinton look foolish and for eviscerating journalists. President Trump was elected in part because the groundswell he helped to mobilize. They never forgot this. 2018, he was doxxed after when he went to live a quiet life in Florida away from the spotlight. But the incestuous trifecta of academics, journalists, and government officials that make up the deep state had not forgotten him. 2021, mere days after Joe Biden took office, Doug Mackey was charged with election interference, arrested by the FBI. They'd been sitting on the case, finally saw their chance to strike. Remember, for years, they'd been trying to get Trump with completely false Russia collusion allegations. So Doug Mackey is accused of committing a crime for posting on Twitter. Specifically, the DOJ alleges that he engaged in a conspiracy to defraud people of their voting rights by posting a satirical meme. 
Bear in mind that this kind of joke around elections is common. Here's an example from 2016. Apparently no concern to Biden's DOJ. He's being charged under 18 USC Section 241, a 100-year law written to prosecute the KKK for violence that has never been extended before to speech. This is chilling implications. The U.S. government is now in the business of deciding what's a lie and what is satire. Examinant First Amendment scholar Eugene Volokh explains there is no limit to how this law could be applied. The law is also not limited to elections. It extends to anyone who conspires to deprive someone of their rights. That means if you shared statistics about COVID or trans surgery, for example, in an effort to get a local school to disavow a public speaker and law enforcement decided that you lied or knowingly spread false information, you could be charged and arrested. Many other disgusting overreaches too here, the politically motivated timing, the petty and vindictive nature of the prosecution, the use of secret witnesses, the DOJ is bringing a secret witness who has pled guilty and agreed to cooperate. In short, the Biden Department of Justice is pulling out all the stops to crush a private citizen simply because he made them look like fools and helped President Trump get elected in 2016. Okay, thread there on uh, Doug Mackey. So for 13 years, interest rates remain near zero. In retrospect, now that it's ended, this was crazy behavior. These were emergency measures declared by the Federal Reserve after 2008, but they never ended. And because they never ended for 13 years, the American economy was distorted beyond recognition in ways too numerous to count. Venture capital and private equity exploded. So did cryptocurrency. So did asset prices, particularly real estate. There was an ocean of money flooding the system. And the people who pay half the tax rate you do benefited most. They started buying third houses and flying private. But there was also a problem that you didn't hear a lot about with low interest rates. If interest rates are at zero, how do you get meaningful returns on your money? This was a problem that virtually every investor faced for more than a decade, very much including the banks. At some point, investors became tempted to make very risky bets. If they wanted to produce returns, they had to, as they say. Okay, so are you tired of like getting blasted in the face by the news? Like, Do you, do you feel like... When it comes to the news media, that you're just you know, lost in some backward area and some redneck is telling you that you've got a purdy face and he wants you to oink like a, like a pig. I mean, are you tired of feeling like a potted plant that's just been drenched by Harvey Weinstein? I mean, you pour out your heart on these live streams and all the papers can say is that you were found in the nude. I mean, do you feel like that nice bloke in Judea who got pelted to death 2,000 years ago by stones just because he said his wife's soup was good enough for Jehovah, right? So do you, do you feel like you're a pincushion for all these, you know, dominant uh, mainstream media intellectuals? Do, do you want to grab life? Are you tired of randos, you know, extracting and impurifying your vital, vital bodily essences? All right. Are you sick of the randos bringing their problems with them, bringing crime? They're rapists. Right? You feel like a, dan a monkey has been dancing all your life? Seems to me you've lived your life like a candle in the wind. You just feel like a naive girl is trying to make her way in the big city and you've learned some hard lessons. Okay, so I'm I just thinking today how the news is like a stress test. So a stress test in the literal sense is when you go in and you do a bunch of hard exercise and you're hooked up to all these monitors to check your, your heart. So you put your heart under a great deal of stress. 
and sometimes you need to pass a stress test to get insurance or to get a, a say an acting job or an athletic job or going into outer space right if you have to prove your fitness you typically have to undergo a stress test and i was thinking that uh, interacting with the news is like a stress test because all of us have a hero system right all of us have things that we hold sacred like even if you're a secularist even if you're an atheist even if you're a leftist or a rightist, there are things that you hold sacred, and you can tell what you hold sacred by what what elements of the news upset you. So, as we all have a hero system, like, and then you interact with the news, like, how do you deal when the news insults or denigrates or damages what you hold sacred? Let's say you believe that marriage should just be between a man and a woman, one man one woman that's it and now you have the explosion of uh, gay marriage and soon we may very well have all sorts of plural forms of, of marriage right if you hold traditional conceptions of marriage as sacred then you will experience it as as real psychic harm the explosion of, of gay marriage if you believe that the military is a heterosexual institution and you see, say, a flood of homosexuals into the military, you will experience that as a real psychic harm. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, is the, the only valid vehicle for salvation, then you will feel anything that denigrates that or derides that as very real psychic harm. If you believe that the Dallas Cowboys are the greatest football team, National Football League team in the world, and they haven't been to an NFC championship game for about 28 years, right? Every freaking NFL season, you'll experience that as a psychic harm, right? This year they lost in the division round to the San Francisco 49ers as a Dallas Cowboys fan. And I experienced that as a very real psychic harm. If you think that uh, you know, a certain musician or a certain song is the very best, but other musicians and other songs get much more praise and say, you like Air Supply, and whenever music critics write about air supply, they do it in a sneering, derogatory tone. You're going to experience that as a real psychic harm, depending on you know, how seriously you, you value air supply. So when you step outside into the world, whether it's just stepping outside spiritually by picking up your phone and, and reading the news or surfing the internet, or if you just get on a bus, or if you interact in a multicultural society, Right? You're going to constantly be experiencing denigration and derision with regard to your hero system, particularly if you are traditional. So how do you handle that? And if you are making commentary on hot-button issues, right? how do you handle that? Because when you talk about hot-button issues, people are incentivized to go back in a very hot way against you. So just thinking today if you can do a live stream like this and talk about hot button issues and it does not materially spiritually psychically psychologically socially damage your life you're probably on really solid psychological ground because almost everybody who does a live stream they can't help but expose themselves you are psychologically psychically naked when you stand and deliver on a consistent basis and there are just so many temptations to overestimate 
your own sagacity, your own learning, your own influence, your own importance. You're very much tempted to share all sorts of dark things that you would not normally share with anyone face to face. But now that you have a more mediated exchange, people tend to share all sorts of dark things that are self-destructive and antisocial. People say a lot of things on the spur of the moment that are not good for them. So if you have the self-discipline to do a live stream, to do live shows talking about hot button issues, and you're not materially damaging your life, you're probably on pretty good psychic ground. Now, you might say, oh, 40, what if someone's taking care of himself while he's doing these live shows, but he's doing all this great social damage? I don't believe that would happen. If you're doing social damage, if you're harming people, people always find a way to get back at you. So if you are feeling good day in and day out, I feel good doing this live stream. I felt good doing this live stream you know, almost every day for the last seven, seven, no, five years, five years. Then I, I think that I'm, somewhat must be rooted in reality because I just see so many other people just going completely off the rails and blowing up their lives, getting fired, destroying their family, destroying their friends, destroying their reputation, uh, because there are just so many ways that you can make yourself look like a total idiot. And it's just so easy to get an exaggerated sense of your, your own importance. But then how do we deal with you know, life in a multicultural society or just taking in the news when it is denigrating everything that we hold sacred. So what are the major ways that people get unhinged following the news? So number one, if you overestimate your ability to change the world. Uh, number two, if you overestimate your own abilities, period, you're going to get into a lot of trouble and you may very well get triggered by something in the news that triggers you, oh, I need to take action because I've got these talents and I need to serve God. I need to serve the planet. Uh, I need to, you know, set these things right. And so if you overestimate your own talents and abilities, that can send you in an, off in an unhinged direction because of the news. Uh, another way you can go mad following the news is overestimating the importance of the news, right? That's which is in the news is uh, rarely important, and that which is important is rarely in the news. So I think, generally speaking, most people would be better off spending less time with the news. Right? There are just so many ways to get injured. Right? A news story that says you know Donald Trump is is the next president of the United States. Right? That's going to send you know what five ten percent of the population spiraling down into some kind of depression. For, for liberals, right? Think about how painful the four Trump years were for people on the, on the left. And now I don't think for people on the right that the Joe Biden presidency is equivalently painful because I think, generally speaking, people on the right don't take politics as seriously as people on the left. People on the right are more likely to have families, they're more likely to have religious commitments, uh, they're more likely to have you know careers and hobbies and other things that they value at least as much, if not more, than, than politics. So I think they are less susceptible. And there are all sorts of surveys showing that liberals are much more upset by the news. Okay, if you overestimate your ability to understand the world and its news, right, the news could uh, send you unhinged. Because if you think you're really smart, you see through the BS, right? You're not one of the, the sheep, right? You know how things really work, right? and then the news consistently turns out in ways you didn't anticipate, that could send you unhinged. And Wall Street, Tina, 
There is no option. One of the risky bets that banks made was loading up on long-term treasury bonds from the U.S. government as a surrogate for cash. Though, of course, bonds are not cash. They're different from cash, as we're now learning. But that worked fine as long as interest rates remained low. But once interest rates rose as a response to inflation, as obviously they were always going to do, nothing lasts forever, including zero interest rates. Once that happened, those bonds were worth less than the banks had paid for them. And so the banks began to fail. You are seeing that right now. You're also seeing revealed for everyone to see the other effect of 13 years of artificial Fed-driven prosperity. And that is a lot of silly, frivolous people in charge. They're like inherited money people. They think they earned it, but they didn't. Right. And so now I expect we'll get uh, a blast that the Silicon Valley bankruptcy was caused by wokeness. Okay, how else can you go unhinged following the news uh, if you're just at war with reality? If you encounter the world as the enemy to be debunked, right? That was kind of my father's attitude towards the world. It's an attitude I inherited and an attitude that I kind of Im implemented, just raging against reality, viewing reality in the outside world as the enemy to be debunked. If uh, the news causes you to deepen your antisocial uh, pathologies, all right, your personality disorders. So if taking in the news feeds you in, you feeling superior to others or feeling inferior to others, or if it leads you to feeling hopeless, I notice a ton of people on the, on the alt-right, you know, whenever a news story comes along that touches on any secret issue for the alt-right, it, like, oh, it just goes to show there's nothing you can do. It's absolutely hopeless. We're, we're screwed. All right, if, if the news makes you feel desperate, if the news triggers you into trying to take some kind of grand action, right? Uh, what is, oh, we're being replaced, bro. Uh, if you get overly inflated or overly deflated, if you identify too strongly with your side winning or losing in the news, if you lose your identity to bigger entities than yourself, you, you have a hero, say Donald Trump, he's your hero and you want to connect yourself to him, right? And so by following the news, you in your head, you're, you're connecting yourself to, to Donald Trump, right? And so you may lose your own identity. I think that's a, that's a pathology that uh, people can be vulnerable for following the news. Uh, getting your sense of importance from the news, that you're so well-informed about the news. Uh, using the news to try to hurt others. So you find all sorts of put-downs for other people from following the news and to make yourself feel bigger and superior to them. And if you sell out who you are to try to gain mainstream respectability, so for a while you got to charge, say, living on the edge, you're a, a dissident, you're, you're a brave truth teller, and then the social cost of living on the edge just, you know, finally wears you down. And so you desire mainstream respectability, and so you kind of follow the cues from the news. Right? I think that can also uh, damage your, your sense of self. So what are the major ways that you see people going unhinged because of the news? It does seem to me that uh, in general, right, people feel you know, much less happy the more news that they take in, the more social media they have in their life. Oh, if you fall into obsessive prepping disorder, right? <laughs> see a lot of people doing that. And uh, good article here in The Atlantic, all right? You're better off not knowing. 
right? The problem with dwelling on news about things you can't control. So if you don't have clarity about the things that are under your control and the things that aren't, right, the news can unhinge you. So for many Americans, these claims, claims sound self-evidently true. Information is good. News is good. Knowledge is power. Awareness of social ills is the mark of the responsible citizen. But what if these things are not true? Recent studies on the link between political awareness and individual well-being have gestured toward a liberating, if dark, alternative. Sometimes, perhaps even most of the time, it is better not to know. So I used to think when I was younger that, yeah, you should always know. But as I've gotten older, I realize sometimes it's better to know, such as, you know, how many sex partners your, your girlfriend has had. Uh, as I aged, I would tell them, please don't tell me how many men you've been with. And then they usually say, oh, I've been with 40. I've been with 50. I've been with 37. But I like being with you, 40, because you're not so big. That means we can do more positions. So like taking a drug, learning about politics and following the news can become addictive. Yet Americans are encouraged to do more of it. Yeah, there's this ethos that it's a good thing to follow the news, become an informed citizen. If you don't follow the news, you become uninformed. So unless you have a job that requires you to know things, it's unclear what the news, good or bad, does for you beyond making you aware of the things you have no real control over. So for me, it's just I enjoy the intellectual challenge of following the news and commenting on the news. Most of the things we could know are a distraction from the most important things that we already know, family, faith, friendship, community. If our time on earth is finite, on average, we only have about 4,000 weeks of life. We should choose wisely what to do with it. So we have an information addiction running wild. It's an epidemic. Politics is making many Americans sick. I see this. So a way to contract the illness is by seeking out the news and consuming large amounts of it. But this is a choice. So I noticed the happiest, most effective people, generally speaking, consume the least news because most of news is speculative and overhyped and irrelevant. So most people find that they are saner, happier, and more informed about what really matters if they don't follow the news. So should Americans rethink their relationship to the news? So one study says between 50 million and 85 million Americans suffer from politically induced fatigue, insomnia, loss of temper, and impulse control problems. So for about 40 million Americans, politics is a significant source of stress in their lives. And about 12 million people report suicidal thoughts due to politics. And this is particularly bad for young liberal people and particularly boys. So politically induced mental and physical symptoms appear to be more pronounced, not just among the young, but specifically among the young who are politically engaged and left wing. So young conservatives experience significantly lower levels of dissatisfaction. But in the United States, being young, engaged, and left-wing correlates with way above normal levels of anxiety, unhappiness, and despair. So since about 2010, right, this is a new development, left-leaning adolescents have experienced alienation within the, the wider country, so their mental health is suffering compared to their conservative peers. And so Taylor Lorenz in the Washington Post wrote on Twitter, we are living in a late stage capitalist hellscape, but it's not really true. We're not experiencing civil war. We're not under a dictatorship. 
living in a democracy, one of the wealthiest that's ever existed. The American safety net is growing more rather than less generous. Unemployment's at its lowest rate since the 1950s. Child poverty has declined by 60% in the past three decades. You're having striking progressive shifts in American history. So conservative views are not hegemonic. Most institutions are controlled by the left. So we have woke capitalism is now dominating corporations that used to be indifferent to social justice. We've got the increased acceptance of gay marriage. Almost every major institution in America that is not explicitly conservative leans left. So why are young conservatives not more depressed? And is it because they care less about politics? Perhaps. Only 5% of Republicans would not work for someone who voted for the opposing presidential candidate compared with 30% of Democrats. 70% of Democrats say they would not date someone who voted for the other candidate compared with only 30% of Republicans. So for many liberals, being depressed is evidence of virtue. <laughs> so being left a liberal signals a relatively greater awareness of social disparities that damages your mental well-being. Right, the implication of left-wing point of view contributes to worse psychological and physical well-being so it's natural to want to feel better in the face of stress but feeling better can come with both benefits and costs so the cost of feeling better is that people experience less motivation to take political action and they divert their attention away from injustice thereby minimizing their likelihood of taking to the street Matt Iglesias argued, mentally processing ambiguous events with a negative spin is what depression is. So educational institutions have increasingly created an environment where students are objectively incentivized to cultivate their own fragility as a power move. So feeling like a victim is tremendously incentivized. Right? Since the 1960s, all right, you get social cachet and status and privilege by maximizing the amount of your victimhood so generally speaking most people are going to be better off disengaging from the constant assault of politics and focusing on catastrophes even once far far out in the future right, it's going to make you mentally sick right how do we move from surviving to thriving I was just watching this as I was getting ready for today's show. The daily habit number one. And it'll sound like a lot when we go through it, but in reality, it doesn't take that long. Daily habit number one is your safety inventory. When you wake up in the morning, when you're drinking your coffee, whatever it is that you do, first thing, do you have what you need to survive? I didn't say want. I said need. There may be a lot of things that you want, but do you have what you need to survive? Do you have adequate food, water, shelter, clothing, medical care, and a safe place to sleep and be? I didn't necessarily say completely stable housing. That may not be in the cards for everybody right now, okay? But do you have a place where you feel safe in order to be, to during the day at night or do you feel like you're in danger if you don't have your basic needs met you can call united way 211 and get referrals to social services that are available 
So if you're not, if you don't have what you need to survive, you need to figure out how you can start working toward those things. So that would be a habit right there. What do I need to do today, tomorrow, the next day to start working toward a situation where I'm getting my basic needs met? And you don't have to do it by yourself. Call 211 reach out to a local food bank or social services and there are people there that can help you without the basic things you need for survival you'll be in a constant state of fight or flight experience hpa axis and emotional dysregulation and have difficulty getting into your wise mind and have little energy for non-essentials so between i don't know 19 88 and probably 2016 much of that time i was living just in survival mode so when i lived in survival mode my my options in life just kind of shrunk so much of the survival mode was because of poor health uh poor finances and living on the edge socially so social social ostracism following you know the crazy things that i was saying and writing online so I would often go into therapy for years and just say, oh, I'm in survival mode. The other thing about survival mode for me is that uh, being in survival mode, not just for me, for you, if you feel like you're in survival mode, you're a lot more ethically flexible, all right? Because you're in survival mode. So I know this, this one uh, prominent person, when she felt like she was in survival mode, she then got permission to start stealing jewelry from her friends. So being in survival mode, can lead you to engage in all sorts of unethical behavior. And that, that goes for me too. I stopped thinking about the ethics of what I was doing. And I just, I had really poor boundaries. I just kind of took everything I could take from people. I would just exhaust them. One girlfriend gave me a book called the givers and the takers. I, I was just so needy. I would just exhaust her. I just take, 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 take. So when you when you're in survival mode you become much more ethically flexible you have fewer compunctions about doing unethical things because hey you're just trying to survive it was like borrowing money from women i always paid it back but uh i think yeah two examples i can think of where i was borrowing money from women oh just in survival mode not not a not a good place to be and so i really resonate with this video by Dr. Snipes, how to move from surviving to, to thriving. So when I was in that survival mode, I had a lot of physical aches and pains. And I remember uh, on Sunday, since I've come back from Australia, I've been going on hikes. And so I was at uh, Will Rogers National Park again yesterday, and I hiked about 10 miles, you know, up the hill, down the hill. And I remember when I used to hike hills about 10 years ago, I'd get all these really tight, sore muscles, and then I'd, I'd spend $100, $200 in physical therapy to take care of them because apparently, you know, going down a steep hill, it puts strain on certain muscles. And I was just like spending money hand over fist on, on physical therapy. And uh, now, luckily, I've got my Bob and Brad uh, massage gun. I've got my activator. I've got my years of Alexander technique training. Whenever I get an ache or a pain, I go on YouTube and you know, look things up. 
So 99% of the time I have, I walk around with no pain. You know, I feel so free in my shoulders, my back, you know, no, no pain. I've, you know, walked down the street feeling great. I was hiking 10 miles yesterday, uphill, downhill, no need to go back to the physical therapist. I got this great uh, foot massager. So I've learned how to take care of myself. And that's one way that I've moved from survival, from surviving to thriving, right? Learning how to just take care of aches and pains. It's no fun. Like I, I would experience my world just compressing, you know, the more muscular tension, unnecessary muscular tension and compression I had, the more aching muscles, the more, you know, I had, had things physically wrong with me. The, my world would just get smaller and smaller and smaller and I'd move into, I'm in survival mode. And then I'd get, you know, much more ethically flexible to, you know, try to survive. But learning how to move with ease, how to take care of tired, sore muscles, how to use strain, counter strain, and positional release therapies, for example, right? That, that has helped me move from surviving to thriving. So it's important, you know, if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, it's important that you recognize, you make sure that you have those base needs in order to thrive. You know, a, a plant needs sunlight, a plant needs soil, a plant needs um, water in order to grow. Habit two, your love and belonging inventory. Connect with yourself to recognize your worth as a person. If you feel like you're not worth protecting and supporting, it's going to be really difficult to believe that anybody else is, think, is going to think that you are worth being. Yeah, if you don't like yourself, all right, if you're not a good friend to yourself, you can't expect anyone else to want to be a good friend to you. Elliot Blatt says, take Epsom salt bars, bro. Didn't you hear what I said? I said, very rarely do I feel any physical aches and pains, so I don't need to take Epsom salt bars. Now, I used to take Epsom salt, uh, I'd put it in a tub and just soak my feet in it because uh, my feet are designed in a way where I'm highly susceptible to foot pain. But because I've learned the right exercises to do, I don't have that problem anymore. But for, for years, I used to soak, soak my feet in Epsom salts almost every night but now glory be hallelujah don't have these problems very much anymore loved and supporting so make a list or a scrapbook or a me wall that you can look at this doesn't have to be something that takes 20 30 minutes a day just work on putting this together so you have something that you can glance at and go yeah i'm worth it i am lovable and connect with your inner child who still feels scared. Let them know that you're going to be protecting them and they don't have to be strong anymore. When they were little, they may have had to be stronger than they should have had to be. And I know I said the should word. And as you went through life, that inner child would come out and fight those battles. Whenever you started feeling threatened, that inner child would come out and react in a very strong way. So start greeting and supporting that inner child. Wake up in the morning and go, all right, we are going to have a great day today. And then let them know that they do belong and their thoughts, wants, feelings, and needs are important. Let them know that they do belong. If you grew up in a traumatic environment, in a chaotic environment, you may not have felt like you belonged. So that inner child still doesn't feel like they belong.
Hey, you belong here. All right, uh, New York Times. Ever wake up with excruciating muscle cramps? Yeah, in my feet. But uh, that's why I do positional. Sometimes like, I get cramps in my feet in particular. So that's why I like uh, strain counter-strain, a.k.a. positional release therapy. I found that tremendously helpful, uh, as well as the Bob and Brad trusty massage gun and the fantastic chiropractic activator tool. <laughs> Elliot Blatt says, my inner child is imprisoned on Epstein Island. Okay, so there's a pretty good podcast by a couple of lefties, If Books Could Kill, and they, they're doing a show. I was listening to all, all their latest episodes. They did one on the 2018 book by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, The Coddling of the American Mind. And they talk about so uh, Amy Wax. How many boomers think that it's important to be exposed? Indicative of a larger culture and another kind of anecdote as just like a random lone wolf yeah. event with no further significance. But like they're doing it exactly wrong because if you look at the incidents where left-wing protesters went too far, those incidents are almost unanimously denounced by the left. Right. right? You have presidents of universities, you have heads of student unions saying, hey, don't. Okay, they tackle they tackle the Amy Wax and question. These days, folks. <laughs> they also left out some controversial portions of the original essay, like she claims that the birth control pill has contributed to social decline. Okay, this is uh, Michael Hobbs, Peter Shamshiri, couple of lefties, podcasters. If to the decline of bourgeois values such as hard work. What? This is a discussion of Amy Wax. Let me. For instance, <laughs> both were movements initiated by idealistic young college students fighting for what seemed to be a noble ideal. The fact that one of them was top down and like killed hella people, and the other one is bottom up and didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah, there are some differences. One one is a uh, a massive totalitarian nation state, right. And the other is a small group of nonviolent student activists. This is like me comparing you to Ted Bundy and being like, "Well, Peter didn't kill anybody, and Ted Bundy did." But there are similarities. <laughs> Look, I have brown hair too. I get it. I get it. I get the comparison. It's time for a little case study. As I've mentioned, nearly the entire book, a collection of anecdotes, many characterized in ways that feel flagrantly dishonest. Mm -hmm. One of those is about University of Pennsylvania Law School professor Amy Wax. Ooh. I thought it would be worth exploring this one because I happen to know a good amount about the controversy. And part of that is because I took a class with Amy Wax when I was in law school at the University of Pennsylvania. No way, really? I do consider myself a bit of a subject matter expert on this fucking lady. So in August 2017, Wax and another law professor wrote an opinion piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer titled Paying the Price for the Breakdown of the Country's Bourgeois Culture. Oh, yeah. The piece argued that many modern social problems could be traced to the decline of bourgeois values, such as hard work and getting married before having kids. The most controversial line was, all cultures are not equal, or at least they are not oh. equal in preparing people to be productive in an advanced economy. Oh. She claimed that this was about culture and not race, but many people read it as a pretty clear racist dog whistle. The story that Haidt and Lukianoff... Okay, so I think that was ill-advised on Amy Wax's part, because if you just wanted to take a scientific HBD perspective, you don't have to make any claims about uh, any culture being superior to any other. All right, my attitude is I recognize that different peoples have different gifts, but I don't stand up here talking about how, oh, this nation, this race, this particular people, they're just inherently superior to other people. So Amy Wax departed from a simple recognition of reality, the different people have different gifts, and then she placed herself in a position that was rhetorically and socially untenable by saying, yeah, certain cultures, and then when she started talking uh, inherently superior, and then when she starts talking about race differences, right, that is then placed on top of saying that certain cultures are superior, and then it essentially rings out as certain races are superior, which is a big, you know, rhetorical mistake. 
And a rhetorical mistake is also a social and, and a moral mistake. I just recognize that different people have different gifts, different cultures have different gifts, and it, it's just a it's a mistake to start claiming that you know, this or that culture is just inherently superior because then inevitably leads to saying, oh, this people is superior and this race is superior to other races. And you don't really want to be in that position when you have a prestigious position in society, such as University of Pennsylvania law professor. Tell is that the next week, a collection of students, alumni, and Penn law faculty condemn the piece. They characterize this as a witch hunt and argue that none of these people addressed the substance of Wax's claims. But what they inexplicably leave out is that almost immediately after the op-ed was published, Wax did an interview with the Daily Pennsylvanian, the Penn student newspaper, where she touted the superiority of Anglo-Protestant culture and said, quote, <laughs> All right, that's, it's just a huge you know, rhetorical and therefore also a, a moral mistake. Don't say Anglo cultures are superior in certain ways. But there are ways that Japanese cultures are superior to Anglo cultures. There are ways that Aborigine cultures are superior to Anglo cultures. There, there are ways that uh, French, Nigerian, Mexican, Guatemalan cultures are superior to Anglo cultures. Right? Every people, every community, you know, every culture has its strengths and its weaknesses. Right? One of the, the great weaknesses of Anglo cultures is that they are the first cultures in the world to secularize. Right? Protestants secularize much more quickly than adherents of any other religion. So I, I just think she made so many unforced errors. I don't shrink from the word superior, and everyone wants to go to countries ruled by white Europeans. Well, okay. Now, the last half of that is factually, you know, largely factually true, right? People do want to go to countries dominated by uh, those from, from Europe. But uh, it's just an unnecessary rhetorical and moral stance is to then say, or well, therefore th those cultures and then inherently, you know, those races are inherently superior. It's just completely unnecessary and it just causes yourself all sorts of trouble. So Amy Wax, in, in my view, just repeatedly shot herself in the foot. She brought on herself all sorts of unnecessary trouble. And it's not a good position to be in. You don't want to be arguing, you know, why one people is superior to another people. You simply want to be observing that from, from your life experience, it seems like different people have different gifts. Oh, holy shit. So the dog whistle is just like a whistle. Yeah. Hi, Lukianov, leave this out of the book. I presume to make it look like Wax's colleagues were maybe unfairly assuming that her right. statements were racist, when right. in fact she was openly endorsing the idea that white European culture is superior. All she did was say that one race was superior to another. And these kids... <laughs> is that what racism is these days, folks? <laughs> they also left out some controversial portions of the original essay, like she claims that the birth control pill has contributed to social decline. Okay. Um, you know, they, they omit that, presumably, so that the reader does not have to do a double take right. <laughs> and think a little bit about who they're defending. A good sign when you're drawing attention to a real societal problem is when you have to... Okay, so I think that's that's a reasonable argument to make. I can understand that there is a very good you know, case to be made that uh, there are some significant downsides as well as significant upsides to the introduction of birth control pills. But if, if you just say, oh, now there are just downsides or this culture is just superior to all others, that's not a rhetorical stance that I'd want to defend. Just simply recognize that with each development, as with each person and with each community and each people, 
their their strengths and weaknesses. They constantly lie to get people worked <laughs> up about it. Their claim that no one substantively addressed her arguments is also just an outright lie. Several of her pen law colleagues provided detailed rebuttals to her statements about like mm. the measurable impact of cultural values, um, which Height knows because one of them, Professor Jonah Gelbach, engaged Height in a blog debate on the subject shortly after it happens. Oh, wow. They even quietly drop a citation to his rebuttal at the end of the very sentence that claims Wax's colleagues never rebutted the substance of her claims. <laughs> Transparently dishonest. As someone who was very familiar with this whole situation, I was like, no fucking way. So were you one of the campus activists at the time, Peter? No, no. When I was um, at Penn, racism was allowed and okay. okay. Um, <laughs> I will say this about Amy Wax at Penn. First, she is one of those nightmare professors that everyone fears because she genuinely revels in making students uncomfortable. Oh, if a student was doing poorly, during like a line of questioning from her, she would be far more likely to stick with that student. Mm. Most professors move on because they right. want productive discussion. Human dignity. Okay, so she is intimidating and she is challenging, and yeah, she could even be a nightmare. But you're you're then incentivized to do your homework and to be prepared, right? So it sounds like she's a tough professor. But uh, I, I don't see a reason here to condemn her for this approach. If she got the sense that someone was out of their depth, she would just hammer them continuously. She oh loved God. it. At the time, although unbeknownst to administration, she was engaging in debates on a couple of blogs about race. Yeah. You know, she was having these really weird conversations that basically were about how she believed that black students in her classes and in her children's classes when they were growing up tended to be more disruptive, lower performers, etc. Well, that's just a, I, I didn't see what's inherently so weird about discussing race. Right. That, that's just a purely subjective judgment. And then the matters that she raises, they're either true or they're not true. So what are school disciplinary records like for different groups? As this um, this whole sort of debacle unfolded in 2017, she made the claim that no black student has ever finished in the top of her class and that she was unfamiliar with any black student at Penn finishing in the top 25 percent of the class, something like that. Elliot Blatt says, saying different people have different gifts, while true lacks specificity, blows the message we know is true. Well, guess what? There are a whole bunch of times in life you want to blur. All right. Why on earth would you think you want to go through life saying exactly what you think? Right? Saying exactly what you think as you go through life, particularly on hot button issues where people then will be extremely dedicated to destroying you. That strikes me as really maladaptive strategy. So blurring, obfuscating, simply staying quiet, retiring from battle. Uh, declining to unnecessarily provoke people who can hurt you. These all strike me as adaptive ways to go through life. And like the dean immediately put out a statement being like, that's just not true. That's, yeah, just, yeah. that's just not true. It is very funny to me in these books about the campus kids. So yeah, either her statements are true, not true, partially true. These are just factual matters. They should not be matters of, of emotion and uh, moral condemnation. They're either true or not true or largely true or largely not true. These are so terrible, whatever. All of the anecdotes are basically like this. This person who is famously a piece of shit <laughs> experienced consequences. <laughs> first, they came for the pieces of shit. When I first read that like she was embroiled in controversy, it just felt so affirming. I was like, you mean the fucking worst person I've ever met? <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Case study number two. <laughs> Evergreen State College. Oh, fuck off. This when is the time to speak plainly? Uh, rarely. I mean, in you know, very rare instances, all right? In safe spaces uh, with people with whom you have a great deal in common, all right? When the, the chances of what you're saying coming back to hurt you or unnecessarily hurt others are quite small. But uh, yeah, generally speaking, you should not speak plainly. 
People who speak plainly are usually too lazy to want to think through the consequences of their words and how their words will impact on them and on other people. So it is almost never a good idea to speak plainly. It is almost always a disaster. Okay, University of Pennsylvania accuses a law professor of racist statements should she be fired. This is from the New York Times. Amy Wax and free speech groups say the university is trampling on her academic freedom. Students ask whether her speech deserves to be protected. Pretty lame framing. So the discussion is which speech deserves to be protected. Then you don't really have free speech. Amy Wax, a law professor, said publicly that on average, blacks have lower cognitive ability than whites. Well, all these statements about different groups and their cognitive abilities, they're either true or not true or largely true. This, these statements are just matters for empirical research. Well, the country is better off with fewer Asians as long as Asians tend to vote for Democrats. Yeah, I think this was just a poor choice of things to say here by Amy Wax. I remember when she did this, and I remember the interviews that she's given over the past two years, and just so many of them are just so self-destructive and completely unnecessarily so, and that non-Western people feel a tremendous amount of resentment and shame. Well, plenty of Western people feel tremendous amounts of resentment and shame. So again, I don't think that was a useful thing to say. At the University of Pennsylvania, where she has tenure, now, I think she's in her mid to late 60s, all right, so she's she's had a pretty good run. She invited a white nationalist to speak to a class. Now, talking about Jared Taylor, whether or not he's a white nationalist, is a good question. A black law student who attended UPenn and Yale said that the professor told her she'd only become a double Ivy because of affirmative action. Well, let's say that uh, Amy Wax did say that, then it's either true or it's not true. It's not something to get upset or emotional about. Professor Wax is denied saying anything belittling or racist to students. Her supporters see her as a truth teller about affirmative action, immigration, and race. They agree with her argument that she is the target of censorship and wokeism because of her conservative views. Well, I would say that uh, whatever group you're in, whatever profession you're a part of, you have to pay attention to norms. And if you want to have a congenial relationship within your group, you have to pay you know, very close attention to norms and frame things in a way that uh, a higher percentage of people will be able to stomach. But Amy Wax has ceased paying any attention to how she frames things, so she's just unnecessarily uh, triggering and provoking people, and she's not put herself in a good rhetorical position. All of which poses a conundrum for the University of Pennsylvania should it fire Amy Wax. The university is now moving closer to answering just that question. After long resisting the call of students, the dean of the law school, Theodore W. Ruger, has taken a rare step. He has filed a complaint and requested a faculty hearing to consider imposing a major sanction on the professor. His about-face prompted protests from free speech groups, which cited one of Tenure's key tenets, the right of academics to speak freely without fear of punishment, whether in public or in the classroom. So you can have tenure. You can have all sorts of legal and formal protections, but if you make yourself loathsome to the community that you're in, right, the community will usually find ways to get rid of you. Is the problem that Amy said something true? Well, whether or not something's true, that, that's one very important question, but 
can you can you phrase it can you frame it can you can you say something true that will be less unnecessarily upsetting to people so that you'll unnecessarily provoke you know less retaliation right try saying something true to your wife when you're trying to have sex with her or when you're in the middle of having sex with her you know try saying a painful truth to a woman you're trying to seduce Try saying painful truths when you're trying to get hired. Try saying painful truths to people when you're trying to advance. Try saying painful truths to you, to, to people when you want to join a social group, right? Saying painful truths is a recipe for personal and social destruction. So very few people have the internal constitution to be able to stand up to being loathed by those around them. So come on, guys, let's move from surviving to thriving. And it's important to let them know they do. They're safe. You got this now. They don't have to be strong anymore because you're there. Habit three, define, and that part takes a while. Um, but once you define your rich and meaningful life, review it on a daily basis. And I encourage people to do this as a collage. Make pictures of things that are important in your rich and meaningful life and either put it as a screensaver or on a poster board so you can look at it and identify the things that are in your rich and meaningful life already that you can nurture and the things that you're working toward. So when you look at that collage each day, reflect on what things on there do you already have and how can you use your energy to nurture those people and things. Elliot says, Luke, aren't you make the case for always capitulating? Yes, I am making the case for always capitulating to reality. Yes, that's my case. Surrender to reality. Surrender to reality. Reality is always, always, always going to win. Reality is always going to defeat your intentions, your noble aspirations, your higher commitments. Right? Your transcendent causes, your unshakable convictions, your loyalties, your courage. Okay, reality is stronger than all of those things. Reality will destroy all of those things and destroy you along with it. So the odds of you overestimating your ability to stand up against social ostracism are about 100 to 1. Right? All sorts of people think that they have the right stuff they can stand up against social ostracism, then they destroy themselves. Kowtowing is in 40s jeans. Yeah. So the guy using a fake name says that me, who uses my real name, stands up here, talks on hot button issues for years, has been blogging on hot button issues for 26 years. I'm the coward. But you, who hide behind a fake name, you're the brave truth teller. Way to go, you. Wow. If any, I could be more like, you know, anonymous people in the chats who are the real warriors. I wish I could be that brave. Back to the New York Times. 12 years, the law school dean, Ruger, writing his 12-page complaint. Professor Wax has shown callous and flagrant disregard for students, faculty, and staff, subjecting them to intentional and incessant racist, racist sexist, xenophobic, homophobic actions and statements. Well, of course, this is all uh, subjective, all right? Uh, someone who's a believing Christian, all right, they would experience 
you know, just a constant barrage of anti-Christian sentiments if they spend much time on a university campus. Complaint says she has violated the university's non-discrimination policies and standards of professional competence. Her statements have led students and faculty to reasonably believe they will be subjected to her discriminatory animus if they come into contact with her. All right, this is coming from an Ivy League university, all right, that actively practices discrimination. Right, they're very discriminating in the type of students that they allow into their universities, right? They're very discriminating with what they subsidize, with what they promote, with what they enhance, right? With, with what they you know, value, right? Everyone discriminates, right? To, to love something is to discriminate and to take up de defense or attack against that which threatens what you love. To discriminate is the height of wisdom. Professor Wax has fought back. She argues that university is trying to trample on her academic freedom. Universities want to banish and punish anyone who dares to dissent, dares to expose students to different ideas. That is a really dangerous and pernicious trend. Ah, she could have exposed students to different ideas so much more competently, so much more acceptably, so much less inflammatory, so much less self-destructively. Professor Wax did not agree to interview requests. Scholars say their speech is under attack from the left and the right. Many free speech groups have criticized the dean, said Professor Wax should not be fired because of her public statements. But for many students, her public speech, which often mixes public policy with insulting broadsides. All right. What is insulting will depend on what your hero system is, depending on what your subjective hero system is all about. You know, whatever you regard as sacred, if Jesus Christ is your savior, is something you hold sacred, then a great deal of discourse in public life, in the news media, in Hollywood, and in universities is going to be incredibly insulting. Students ask, aren't these statements relevant to her performance in the classroom? Don't they show the potential for bias? And does this professor and this speech deserve the protection of tenure? Reality is a pack of spear-wielding tribesmen. <laughs> yes, that, that is reality. I mean, I mean, some say love. You know, some say reality, right? That uh, it is a river that just drowns the tender reed of your distant thoughts. You know, some people say reality, it's a razor that leaves your soul to bleed. You know, some people say love, it is a hunger. It's an endless aching need. But I say reality, it is a flower and you it's only seed, right? Reality is the heart afraid of breaking that never learns to dance. Reality is the dream afraid of waking that never takes a chance. Reality is the one who won't be taken, who cannot seem to give, and the soul afraid of dying that never learns to live. So when the night has been too lonely and the road has been too long, and you think that reality is only for the lucky and the strong, just remember in the winter, far beneath the bitter snows, lies the seed that with the sun's love in the spring becomes the rose. Right here, uh, the decoding the gurus, a couple of lefty academics, yeah. and, and, and that's true of that's true of many of the gurus too, you know, not just not just him, um, but they, and, because it's all about the manner and the form. 
it's it's so that's why they they're, they're good at it they definitely come across as you know um you know if you just look at how their, their style they've, they've got it in spades they're much more academic than your typical academic right um and so it works it works for well and for the you know the thing is isn't it i mean that there's no incentive for an academic to engage with the public really yeah we don't you don't get you don't get rewarded for it you know if you if you're wanting that's a profound point right overwhelmingly in academia there is no incentive to engage with the public there is no incentive to gain twitter followers or to write blog posts or to appear on the news right to get in the newspaper to be in magazines right the incentives of the academy and not the incentives of your typical live streamer or tweeter, right? There is no incentive for academics, right, to engage with the public. Tenure, or you're wanting a job, or you're wanting um, to get promoted. Well, do you just do you disagree, Chris? It well, I think it depends because, like, so the one thing I I completely agree. I mean, that's a tough thing there that uh, Matt Brown was saying, but uh, I think he's right issues and stuff and then other people poke fun at them for legitimate reasons i would hear some dad i'm not like a brett fan but i i want to say that like where talking about brett weinstein here. are the where are the people who are doing the that kind of thing speaking to audiences but applying you know their genuine academic stuff to those kind of issues in a responsible but, way but, but here's the thing okay here's my opinion the reason why that doesn't occur is because there's no market for it because as you said before it's boring yeah like we <laughs> I remember I was on the plane coming back from Australia uh, 14, 15 months ago, and I was sitting next to an academic, an economist, and I was telling him about my YouTube show. And he says, oh, what do you talk about in a YouTube show? Well, I say I take items in the news and I try to dig out what what's the academic consensus with regard to what's going on in the news. And he says, oh, is there a big demand for that? You know, do you have a big audience? I go, no, I have like 10, 10 viewers. And he wasn't in the least surprised. We could, we could do like, you know, you listen to a, to a COVID, um, you know, a, a yeah, that is. COVID podcast, which is extremely accurate, extremely well-informed, extremely based on the current best, um, knowledge of the science. And like, it's, like boring. It, it's boring. Like it would be, it would be because yeah. Um, and that's like my work. Yeah. The most important things are boring. So Richard Spencer talks about how Republicans have no ideas about how to make the country better. Yeah. Basically, every Republican stands for more law enforcement and more punishment for violent criminals than almost every Democratic politician. Right? The single, simple solution to America's number one problem of violent crime. But it's boring. It's not nearly as exciting as, you know, Dionysian rhetoric. It's boring, too. Like, you know, I, I don't, it doesn't have popular appeal. So in order to get the popular appeal, you need to talk bullshit. And that feels very sad. And that's a good point, right? Not everyone who has popular appeal talks BS, but uh, 98% of people who have popular appeal talk BS, right? You won't have popular appeal. Right? The incentives are overwhelmingly to talk BS. So you want to talk truth and talk to 10 people, or do you want to talk to 1,000 people and talk BS? Which way, Western man? But here's the bit where I think I, and so I, where I might be this, or I think at least there's an exception to the point you make. So there is a path in academia to influence and success and attention, which involves giving popular talks and uh, becoming a well-known commentator, right? Like I'm not casting disparagement here, but like people like Kate Mann are mostly known 
uh, as figures, not for their academic work, I think, but because they wrote popular books with, which became culture war issues, right? And then they have a Twitter presence or that kind of thing. So I, I don't think it's inherent to the medium that people need to simplify things down to complete bullshit. Like, I think there is a space now for people who were well-informed and relatively moderate, but are willing to offer kind of takes that relate to contemporary issues or that are talking about big picture stuff. I, I think there is a desire for that kind of content. And that's why you get people like Peterson and Brett Weinstein with followings. And there, I don't think it's inherent that you couldn't do a version of that where you are, you are a researcher who doesn't have these revolutionary, you know, theories where you think like, like Brett or like Jordan Peterson, and you're, you're just trying to apply your understanding of your field to social issues and that kind of thing. Like it's probably going to get you in controversy to some extent if you do that, but there is a big reward available to people who do that. Like that's why Sam Harris is. Okay. Going back to the number one question for tonight, do you feel like the news damages your happiness? So I don't feel like the news damages my happiness, but I do see a lot of people, their happiness, their well-being, even their mental health is considerably damaging their, their mental health and their happiness. And also, no matter how happy and healthy you are, consuming news will cause you all sorts of pain because it will inevitably injure your hero system. So just as interacting with a wide range of people will cause you pain as you are forced to confront the possibly fictional nature of your own hero system, so too well reading a lot of news right this is uh the decoding the gurus chris cavanaugh here talking with matt brown apart from the fact that he had a trust fund and all that as well but that's partly why he has the audience he has is just because he's he's willing to talk about issues and give i mean he's got like there's tons of stuff about why he's popular but but a lot of his content is pretty dry academic discussions yeah. of niche topics and there's a big audience for it yeah oh look i uh, yeah look I, I deliberately put it in a way that was a bit sweeping this look it's obviously true what you say like there are like the podcast i listen to i listen to heaps of you know just because i like astrophysics and physics so just as a, a lay person i listen to a lot of them right and there's really really good ones out there um so you know and there are you know even on twitter which is the worst kind of attention incentive machine yeah um there are excellent we all know there are excellent accounts that are, are not linear and are hugely popular have you know hundreds of thousands yeah. of i guess i'm just saying that on the balance on the balance it's it's there's there's, got, there's always going to be a lot of bullshit as well because bullshit sells it, it, it's like a direct route to to popularity yeah, the, the easy option the easy option yeah and um, chris can I, I mention as well i i wonder if this experience happens to either you because this happens to me occasionally i'm just like there yesterday i found out there's I just seen somebody, you know, retweeting an account and it was like some account called like top of the morning coffee or something like that. And it's a, it's a young guy in his, I think like twenties or early thirties, Irish guy. And he's like, now seems to be CEO of some coffee company or whatever, but he was, he was sharing this like tweet. And then I looked at his account and he had 7.1 million followers. Right. And I, I looked him up and he's like the most popular Irish uh, YouTuber. He's a YouTube guy. Right. And, and I, I was just like, 7.1 million and this is just a random youtube person i've never heard anyone ever mention this guy in any culture war stuff yeah you can have 10 followers and be more influential and you know make more of a contribution to society 
and someone with seven million followers, depending on the quality of the of what you share with people. Uh, Richard Spencer tweets: Joe Biden has effectively nationalized the American banking sector. I don't think that's true. Making him one of the most consequential presidents the last hundred years. Yeah, I, I've largely lost interest in what Richard Spencer has to say. But he's seven million followers, and this is a you know to me an obscure figure. And you just realize like there's so many, so much attention, so many like uh, niches out there with these influencer types or you know these big accounts that. That, that reach is like seven times Sam Harris's, uh, at least, you know, in terms of the amount following on Twitter. That might not translate into like cultural reach or that kind of thing, but it's just, it just mind blows me sometimes when I, I see an account and I'm like, how does this, like, how am I completely unaware of this whole ecosystem and huge amount of like attention that exists for people that, yeah, they, they have huge followers, right? Seven million. That's like Sam Harris is treated as a very big deal and he has like a million and something on Twitter. But this is like a random Irish guy who YouTubes. <laughs> it's, it's the spread of the internet, right? Okay, here's more from Decoding the Gurus. True. You know, most of them have um, virtually no academic track record of actually contributing something to, to, <laughs> and you know, they, they've, they've often got a couple of spoilers. Talking about PhDs who are a big deal on social media, like uh, Brett Weinstein or Eric Weinstein, but they haven't made any scholarly contributions. Now, uh, John Peterson does have genuine scholarly contributions. So he's an exception. Here. Body kinds of, you know, I've done a couple of things, maybe they have a PhD, maybe they did a tiny bit after that. Um, but, you know, that, yeah, except for failed. But, but then there's like tens of thousands of essentially failed academics, right, <laughs> who have done the same, right, and who are nobodies. And then you have people, you know, when there are literally, and I don't include myself in this, but there are thousands of people who are like really at the top, and if you, you know, who, are, who really are, take any field, whether it's evolutionary biology or statistics, um, there are like, there are seriously wise people in... Um, yeah, the significant are really famous, and the famous are really significant, right? The people in the news, on the news, really important, important people really go on the news. Like alive today, but who don't spend all their time doing um, endless podcasts because they're kind of busy, you know? And in and, and actual fact, I've thought about this a bit, like, like, you know, why don't they spend more time popularizing? Well, I guess there's a bunch of things that goes into it. One is that they're busy. Um, academia doesn't really reward you for having 50,000 followers on Twitter. Um, nor should it. Um, and I, but I think the other thing too is that, like, if I compare, say, e even someone like Taleb, right, who has a far more substantial collection of writing and, 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 even, and publications as well than, than your typical guru, um, he, he's still nowhere near any of the, the genuine heavy hitters out there in terms of contributions. And Jordan I think Peterson was, though. Right. I mean, just in terms, I mean, not in terms of like, he's a super heavy hitter, but like he's well-sighted and he's, he's got a, yeah. like, he's got a proper academic yes, career. He's got a proper academic resume. Yeah, that's right. Um, but I'm sort of thinking why, um, like the, like, like, let's tell it, like, why aren't, um, the, like, there's some people like today who have contributed, who have just revolutionized in many ways, our understanding of statistics and basically brought it together with machine learning and innovated these amazing methods that get used by idiots, like, you know, mediocre people like me, uh, <laughs> you know, and they no, nobody knows who they are outside of outside of the discipline um and i think it's partly because like the real deal like the real thing is is, is the stuff that's actually useful and gets used is isn't very it's just not satisfying like it's not like the black swan idea which people could just graph and go yeah that sounds good that makes yeah i could see how that's applied can be applied to my life and whatever like things like um regularized regression models things which see i, I even to explain it i'd have to give a very boring 20 minute kind of thing and everyone's eyes would just roll back in their heads because it is boring 
but it's important, you know. So I mean, it makes me sad that like kind of the real, the real stuff is is intrinsically difficult and not particularly, um, you know, immediately intuitively satisfying. Yet that's that's real. Yeah. 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 That's the important stuff. Like the real stuff. The important stuff is not usually immediately intuitively satisfying. It takes you know, some effort to comprehend, to digest, to access the real stuff, and it's so much easier to. Just fill yourself up with the the junk food of social media content. The other thing, Chris, is I've noticed that you know, there, of course, like in academia, you meet blowhards, right? You meet people, or or even people who have legitimate reason to crow, and they're like they're super successful, and then you meet them and like, oh, like like I wish I didn't meet you, um, but um, but I had a better impression beforehand. But the the thing that came up whenever we were like doing the first episode and the one that looked at Brett and Eric. And I realized when talking to Matt, like I know much more about Eric and Brett's PhD than I do for anyone I've collaborated with. Because people I collaborate with, you know, they might have mentioned the topic of their PhD once or twice, but they don't keep talking about it or like linking everything back to, yeah, when I was working on my PhD, I did it. But like Brett and Eric, they, they're constantly like shitting on academia and stuff, but they're also constantly referencing their PhD and their professor status and the like in a way that I have seen few academics do that. Like it's it's kind of I, I, you don't notice it all the time, but as soon as you do it, I like I just realized there's a guy I work with who I've seen like every day from you know five years. It reminds me of a chiropractors, right? I was at a Shabbat dinner with a bunch of Jewish professionals and everyone went around the group introducing themselves by their first name, except for the chiropractor. You know, the chiropractor said and my name's Dr. Cohen. So the real doctors said, you know, my name's Josh. You know, my name's Sarah. But the chiropractor said, I'm Dr. Cohen. Years. And, and we're interested in the same things. I've got a vague idea what his PhD is about. And it's actually in my field. And we've never really, you know, talked about it in, in length. And he's never really dwelt on it. And he doesn't know the content of my PhD either. So that, like, that just struck me as like a really big difference between like the... And I, I know Eric and Brett are kind of prototypes in that area, but I think it would apply in general. Like I know about Sam Harris's research, even though it's only a couple of papers. Um, so, yeah. But what, do you have a similar impression, Chris, or why were you asking that? Uh, I mean, I flirted with doing a PhD uh, for a number of reasons, didn't do a PhD. And I'm into thinking the same with Sam or, um account strongman podcast popped up and it's like oh steel man steel man steel man sorry he'd be awarded because he was giving brett like three individually <laughs> one one for explorer modes which is just like a yeah this is eric weinstein giving you know his brother brett saying he deserves like three nobel prizes uh, two there's just it, it seems to be an absolutely like another venue that you're just going to hear about endlessly on podcasts and stuff. Because I listened to Brett's most recent podcast and he was talking about, um, it actually sounds kind of amusing, but they, uh, Matt, you're probably not aware of like what happened here. So they made a room that, and it's like, you know, you make like a room with a topic, right? And the topic was, is Clubhouse. Remember Clubhouse? Everyone was talking about Clubhouse a few years ago. Too obsessed with wokeness. So this is the Decoding the Gurus from February 2021. So two years ago. Or something like that. Right. So this was the the name of the room and it was made by the journalist michael tracy who's uh kind of heterodoxy a uh, little bit of a edgelord type guy anyway they had the room they had a bunch of the usual suspects in um chatting about things and eric and brett and peter Bergosi and, and benjamin boyce and stuff went in and and there was somebody in the crowd 
a kind of social justice inclined person who made the point that there were no people of color um, that were talking and then made the point that there were no people of color who had moderator status, you know, that they can decide who to kick in and out. And uh, so they invited them up to moderator status. Michael Tracy gave them moderator status and they proceeded to kick him out of the room <laughs> and then move all of the um, white speakers off the platform, bring in their own like social justice inclined people. And they, <laughs> to that audience with like Brett and Peter Bogosian and stuff, they, they just kind of, you know, did a, an evergreen again about like lecturing them about that they're racist and they invited Brett up on the stage and then started calling him a white supremacist and telling them to like PayPal him money if the, he wants to speak and stuff. So it, it was like a hostile takeover, but it's just like a virtual room, right? You could literally just click a button, make a new room and become uh, like a moderator. But because this room had, you know, big names when it started, lots of people stayed and uh, Brett was arguing that it's like a very insightful event because this is what they want to do. Like they want to pretend, you know, give them like invite them up, let them take part, and then boom, they'll just like take over. So you were saying it's a you know microcosm experience of Evergreen. So and looking at Steve Saylor's blog, he says New York Times headline: the worst thing law professor Amy Wax ever said is on average blacks have lower cognitive ability than whites. From a very long article in the news section of the New York Times, more or less demanding that the tenure of the distinguished University of Pennsylvania law professor Amy Wax be stripped for crime speech. So this is the lead item in the New York Times indictment of Professor Wax, right? Her statement that uh, different groups seem to have different gifts. So way back in his controlling decision in the 1978 Backey case, Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell declared we should have affirmative action so that colleges can have better classroom discussions. Of course, affirmative action made classroom and post-college as well discussions vastly worse by ruling out discussion of the single biggest social facts, such as different groups seem to have different levels of IQ, different levels of homicide rates, different levels of sexually transmitted diseases, right? People have different, you know, life histories, right? Different groups, statistically speaking, tend to have different life histories. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for now. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.